This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pelgrain Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Low-tech settings. Rewatching Revisited. Lynn Hardy. And Edomancy. Prophecies of Doom. Protagonists slopping through the wilderness. Battles of blood and mud. At least in Gloom of Thrones, you know the story will get an ending. Gloom of Thrones parodies characters and calamities from the Game of Thrones universe and combines them with the award-winning Gloom format. The goal of the game is to heap as much misery as you can on your characters before eventually killing them off. It's from Atlas Games, the publisher of the original Gloom game, and of hits like Once Upon a Time and Ars Magica. Gloom of Thrones is kickstarting until April 29th. Search for it on Kickstarter, or go to atlas-games.com slash gloomofthrones. Or follow the link in the show notes. Because as the saying goes, if you aim for the porcelain throne, you best not miss. Did you set up the script to give that line to me? Might have. You know nothing, Jon Snow. The rattle of dice, the thump of miniatures, the crunch of Doritos, and the benevolent gaze of Peter Frampton coming alive welcome us once more into the shag-carpeted confines of the gaming hut. But what is that? The floor is not shag-carpet, but rushes. That's not Peter Frampton, but a tapestry depicting Hermes or even Dionysus, god of Drama. The dice are made of... Well, they're made of sheep's knuckles, which I guess is kind of cool, but... Oh my god, so are the Doritos. That's not what we were looking for. And the miniatures are actually... Votive idols. Yeah, and th- those are those are game science uh, sheep's knuckles. Those are those are Lou Zaki uh, calibrated sheep's knuckles. That's right. There's um, uh, uh, Zakagaloy. Anyhow, uh, we are in a, a primitive section of the gaming hut, thanks to beloved Patreon backer Jason Thompson, who asks, "How do you interest players in low tech settings?" This is just a rough feeling, but my impression is that F20 players and publishers are increasingly embracing high-tech technomagic settings, which bodes ill for lovers of old-timey bronze and even Stone Age fantasy. Robin, as perhaps the greatest living perpetrator of Stone Age fantasy, uh, Madlands, what's your thought on this question? I I think it's absolutely true that uh, players want to feel that they have a range of action and super cool things that they can do and that they look at, if you say, this is a low-tech setting, uh, they're going to hear there's less stuff that you can do. They're going to hear that, uh, oh, well, we're stumbling around in the mud, uh, our armor isn't very good, our healing is bad, and uh, when I want to think of a, a cool new way to defeat the bad guys, uh, my range of uh, actions is is confined uh, to the grimly historical to the to the dusty shelves of uh, the British Museum and the answer to that though is when you look at the most famous uh settings uh in which it's certainly true of uh the the madlands that uh, the whole point of that is that it's a horror fantasy game in which you are mm-hmm. uh, radically uh, outmatched by your environment and the creatures in it and you have uh, you know, basically a, a, a very limited uh, technology, and that's not how you solve your problems. And it's not a power fantasy, 
and therefore that's why uh, that is considered a uh, a niche setting uh, for the for the cognoscenti because uh, I think especially in the F20 space people are uh, looking for uh, power fantasy. And that being what the games are excellently designed to provide, right? Yeah. And so, and so a pitch that, how would you like to be disempowered, uh, <laughs> is, uh, as written, a, a tough one. However, if you look at the more popular uh, sort of Bronze Age settings, for example, Glorantha, uh, there's all kinds of insanely crazy, powerful things that you can do in that world that the power of the gods and the power of magic is such that you have an incredible range of possibilities that you have. You can go up the power scale. It's true that, you know, at beginning levels, because it's basic role-playing, you're failing a lot. And, uh, you know, how much uh, armor points are in that leg grieve is very important to you. And you, if you get a, your leg grieve wrecked by a gorp, uh, that's very annoying. You have to go and, and uh, pay for it. So there's a... But there's still a lot of power and, and wonder in that setting. It's just in contrast to... A, a different sort of uh, level of physical accoutrements that people have. So the question then, I think, is to how to make that sound fun if that's what you want to do. And the question is, why do you want to do it? If you want to do it because you like stories in which the characters are radically disempowered, I would say remind yourself that you're the game master. <laughs> <laughs> and maybe that's not what the players want. Otherwise, I would say focus on the cool things that the characters can do as you would in pitching any uh, world to your players. So I, I think the, the problem uh, partly is how you sell it, that if you are uh, looking at this as, well, you know, there's, there's just way less that you can do here than you can in this uh, crazy techno magic setting. Well, guess what? Of course, they're not going to be interested in that. Yeah, I think a lot of it is, and your Glorantha answer alludes to this, is selling the license. And the license may be literally Glorantha, or it may be the Iliad, or Bible Times, or something else that is cool and associated with that era. And, for example, back at the big D20 boom, there were a couple of books that were Play the Iliad with D20. And there were uh, there was one, at least, that was Play the Bible with D20. Testament, I think was what it was called. It was from our buddies at Green Ronin, and it was lovely. And so there was that sort of historical tourism has a quality of its own. And if you reassure people that, yes, you will be like Achilles and get to slay zillions of foes, or yes, you will get to use uh, the fell and dank magics of Pharaoh or Babylon, that'll be neat. Um, you can, for example, present Conan as a Bronze Age fantasy, which I think, although Conan is always using steel, it sort of uh, amounts to the same thing. And again, Conan presents a sort of a low-level, rough-and-tumble world without a lot of... um uh of grave character power, but of course, many of the Conan games allied that feature entirely and uh, are perfectly good power fantasy games by themselves. So you can sell Conan or a Conan-like thing and uh, focus on the Bronze Age quality of it, either by setting it in the historical Bronze Age, which, like I need to tell anyone, is full of excitement and falling cities and gods and miracles, or uh, set it in your own Bronze Age version. Also, I think isn't Tecumel a Bronze Age setting as well? Technically, uh, I'm I, I, I'm going to say I think so. Yeah, um, but but it has technomagic in its past, so I think right. that's a, yeah. a weird example for this. But one. again, that's another possible way: is that the the magic has fallen and you can recover it in the sort of barrier peak sort of way. Right, and I think in general the answer is pitch your uh, campaign to your players the, the way that you would any other one, which is 
focus in on the things that your individual players like to do. So uh, your butt kicker player, you can uh, list off, you can kick the butts of Hittites and, and Asherites and Hyperboreans and uh, Scythians and uh, uh, Colossi and Golems and, you know, create that sense of, you, you know, you're not going to be disempowered, oh, butt kicker. There will still be plenty of, of uh, Bronze Age butts to kick. and the, Right. And uh, they'll be wearing weak, easily penetrated bronze, not tough iron. Right. Because really, what any game that uses older, you know, that stops the tech level of uh, arms and armor, they'd then just stretch out the scale, right? So that in this world, bronze armor is the best, and it's very effective and cool and great. And and again, you thank just, God you're not using wussy boiled leather armor, right? Exactly. And and as you go through your player list, you know, oh, while well, you uh, you always like to play the uh, uh, the sort of mysterious wanderer character, well, uh, your mysterious wanderer could be from uh, this uh, uh, Bronze Age kingdom and would have these qualities, or you know, the person who always loves uh, you know politics and intrigue, you can describe the political intrigue of your setting and and so on and so forth, going on. Uh, through your uh, list of players. Your character always likes to be the sort of uh, social butterfly and engaged in, uh, you know, the crazy art scene. Well, here's the, the art scene of this world. So create a description of the world that focuses not on, uh, the technology's not so great, but rather on the opportunities to do fun stuff that appeal to each of the various players. Uh, and, uh, and that can also provide you an opportunity to do some research into your setting. If you just have sort of a vague idea, I'd like to run in Babylon times, then the act of selling Babylon to each of your players will let you figure out, oh, yeah, I'd better set it at this period. So there will be lots of art scene for my art-loving uh, player to do, and I'd better set it in this location near... Uh, these cities so that there will be lots of politics for my politics and intrigue-loving player. And if I set it right as the um, Cassite invasion is beginning, lots of butt to be kicked. And um, our mysterious player can have come in from far to the east, from the mysterious land of Dilmun, uh, because it's still a mysterious land and no one knows that it's just boring old Bahrain yet. So there's all manner of possibilities that you can present to your players, like you say, and then by figuring out where your players fit into a specific historical time period in terms of their preferred play style, that lets you do more research on the time period. And maybe you're like, oh, I really don't think I can fit Sandra in because she likes um, uh, uh, elegance and and, and um, uh, smooth crystal uh, glassware. And I don't think there, I can really pretend that there is that in, in the Bronze Age. Maybe, maybe I can ask Sandra... Given Babylon, what would you like to play? Or ask Sandra, do you mind being, you know, a time traveler who's frustrated by how terrible everything is in Babylon and can be sort of the voice of the party for the primitive screwheads that they have to keep dealing with? I think one of the things that people like about high fantasy is the sense that anything can happen and that anything they can think of, they can kind of add to the setting. So another uh, drawback that you're probably running into with low tech settings is just that they are more wedded to being a history buff. Uh, which for some players creates a, a barrier of reluctance because they're like, well, I don't know anything about the Assyrians. I don't have time to learn anything about the Assyrians. So I'm always going to feel kind of dumb uh, in this setting. And if I say, oh, well, uh, you know, I, I don't know this weapon from that weapon, and uh, I'm just going to be getting information all the time throughout the game, whereas if we're playing a high fantasy game, well, I can just, you know, make up a weird clockwork god and say, well, I'm... Uh, I'm pledging my allegiance to this clockwork god, and I go to the 
the uh, the crosswords where the great grandfather clock is and uh, and call them down so that uh, players may be feeling a reluctance to um, mess with uh, either the canon of a historically inspired world or the actual historical canon if you're using the real world. So you then have to show them that they will have some freedom to make stuff up and and drift further from uh, Babylon or whatever it is that you've decided to to set your game in in order to give them the usual uh, degree of influence over the setting and the ability to sort of make stuff up and and feel uh, comfortable because the the thing about sort of a uh, a Tolkien gone techno magic world is that everybody sort of has an idea of what that is and you can't be wrong. So you then have to inculcate you can't be wrong in this setting either. Uh, and that uh, can be a bit of a gap for some people. Yeah, uh, like many of our of, of our questions, it comes down to you have, have you the GM built up enough trust in your players, both that you don't actively hose them, and also that wherever you lead them leads to a good time that you can get away with something like uh, setting a game in you know uh, ancient Troy or Babylon or a or Glorantha, even uh, given that there is a massive and terrifying canon of Glorantha, and not everyone wants to learn it. So there's there's any number of possible ways you can screw up Glorantha, even though Glorantha is, of course, wonderful and magical and crazy, just like most um, uh, fantasy settings. But you have to sort of know the right kind of crazy to be to fit into Glorantha well. You can't just sort of go go nanners like you can in in straight up F twenty. Anything goes. Um, uh, uh, swords and pistols in the Wild West sort of setting. Right, and and that is a problem, and it's a problem often in the minds of players and not even so much in the, that of creators because the message has always been change Glorantha to fit what you want to do. Make it yours. But then uh, there are a lot of players who are like, but I've learned this corpus of information. And, and that's another uh, thing that you're going to have to look out for is that the player's may be concerned not about you, the GM, but about other players in the group. So that, uh, you know, if other players are ancient history buffs and I'm not, I'm going to feel at a disadvantage, even if I trust you not to be well-actualing me all the time about pole arms. Well, what about uh, uh, Jed and Jessa? Are they going to be uh, being jerks to me the whole time? Or uh, am I going to feel like I'm always one uh, step behind them? So you also have to look at the knowledge base of the uh, of the player group and ask yourself, is this actually going to be fun for everyone or is it going to be noticeably more fun for half the group than the other half? Which is, I suppose, a question you sort of have to ask at every new game. Absolutely. You know, well, well, only half the group like it. And like with every new game, maybe be ready to pull the plug and say, well, Troy fell. We all had fun. Let's move on and play whatever else. Uh, uh, science vampires in the 21st century or something. Right. Or, or, or to find a way to, to build a character that uh, uh, gets around that. So you mentioned, you know, the, the time traveler who's just dropped in. So that makes sense that your knowledge of pole arms is less than that of the other characters and you have some other cool advantage. But I think people who want a low tech setting are going time travel. What? <laughs> what? That's contrary to our extremely realistic uh, die face for, first in the, in the dust of the desert uh, ethos that I'm seeking to inculcate here. So, uh, it you know, it really is, uh, like any acquired taste, uh, you have to either uh, pitch it to people who have already acquired that taste or, you know, analyze what it is that, that excites you about it and find a way 
to uh, sort of meet uh, the more reluctant players halfway. And uh, when it comes to meeting things halfway, uh, I always like to meet a commercial halfway, so I'm going to head halfway to this commercial, and I bet halfway past it is another segment. In the 1960s, the CIA hunted Yeti in Tibet, built aircraft that touched the edge of space, and experimented on mind control. But there's more to that story. In the 1960s, the FBI infiltrated occult movements, wiretapped congressmen, and winked at the mafia. Yeah, but there's more to that story. In the 1960s, the Marines invaded Cambodia, the Navy listened to the Pacific Deeps, and the Air Force covered up UFOs. Oh boy, is there more to that story. Those stories all touch the surface of the secret world, the poisonous, unnatural world of the Cthulhu mythos. A government program named Majestic tries to weaponize the unnatural. A government program named Delta Green tries to destroy the unnatural. In the fall of Delta Green, you play the agents of Delta Green, caught between your oath to America and your duty to humanity, caught between a world on fire and the icy cold of other dimensions. Written by Kenneth Hyde, The Fall of Delta Green adapts Arc Dream Publishing's Delta Green the role-playing game to the award-winning gumshoe engine. The Fall of Delta Green is a standalone game of standing alone against inevitable destruction. Delta Green falls in 1970. The world falls shortly thereafter. The Fall of Delta Green. Grab it in your store or from the Pelgrane Press website. It's Delta Green. It's the 1960s. In Gumshoe. What are you waiting for? The end of the world? The popping of popcorn and the silent digital non-whir of a DCP rolling uh, through the projector tell us we've once more entered the uh, most filmic confines of the cinema hut. And this time around, we're uh, doing part two of a, a segment that we uh, dealt with earlier on the subject of rewatching movies. And I thought that we would get to not just what makes a film rewatchable, but other things about the experience of rewatching. Uh, but we didn't. We spent 15 minutes on what makes a film rewatchable. So we covered that. And now we're going to uh, delve into other aspects of the experience of watching films over and over and uh, seeing how they change with you over time. Uh, do you alter your perspective on them? Uh, do they become a different experience? And I guess the classic kind of rewatch can is the one in which something you thought was really great on <laughs> later viewings surprises you by no longer being what you thought it was. Have you uh, had that experience with films? I mean, I think the classic example for that is uh, something that you loved in your childhood. So you might have watched, say, uh, Buckaroo Banzai and thought, this is the greatest movie ever. It has everything I ever wanted in my life. And then you watch as, a, as an adult and you say, oh, except for, you know, a script that makes any damn sense or reliable motivations for the characters or good performances from virtually anyone. Uh, it, it's, it's not a good movie. I still love it because you always love what you loved or you should always love what you, what you love. You should never abandon love, I would say. But I will not defend it as a cineast against someone else saying, you know, maybe John Lithgow has been in better movies than this. And I would say, yeah, maybe you're right. I, I, I can't say you're not right. Um, and that's, but that's sort of my canonical from the highest of heights to the, well, that was enjoyable, but I wouldn't tell anyone else to watch it. Uh, for me, De Palma's The Untouchables 
uh, really worked on me the first time I saw it on a, a giant screen in the first row in this converted vaudeville house uh, uh, that no longer exists as a, a, a movie theater um, or a theater of any kind. And the impact of that film, even though I realized that it was... Uh, it's De Palma, so it's unsubtle, of course. Uh, and certainly moments like the, oh, here now he's riffing on Battleship Potemkin. That's an obscure reference unless you've ever taken a film course. Oh, yeah. So, you know, even the first time I was not looking at that as a masterpiece of world cinema, but the second time I watched it, it's like, oh, wait, this just falls completely flat that the, uh, energy and drive and, and suspense and tension of it, uh, seem to be a, a part of the experience of having watched it that one time and, oh gosh, it's gone. And in fact, this is not only uh, no longer the first experience of watching it, but this now seems to me an actively flat and not so great movie. And one, of course, that I'm not going to rewatch a third time. Right. To find out if you were just had a bad clam. I mean, I think that um, I've had a similar experience, uh, maybe uh, in, in a less intense key with the untouchables. Uh, I still love a great, many things in it, not least Sean Connery's ridiculous cop, but the, the story just really sort of loses momentum and sort of just, I mean, the reels keep on reeling, but the last, you know, half of the movie is just sort of, and then, and then, and then, and there's no, you know, organic quality to it. And I noticed that same thing when I rewatched Tombstone of all things, a movie that, um, uh, by all rights, I should love because it loves Wyatt Earp as I do. Uh, but again, it's, it's one of those great movies that you know, there's so many good things in it. And then that last act is just, and then, and then, and then, and it's not, uh, organically part of the, of the rest of the movie in the way that, you know, a, a completed movie or a, a movie that has a structure to it is. And of course, if you read about how they made Tombstone, you know, that's exactly what happened. They ran out of money. And so they had to sort of just cut together an ending from the stuff they'd already filmed. But again, that first time I saw Tombstone, I was so caught up in it with, you know, Val Kilmer and, um, uh, Kurt Russell and all the, the greatness and the huckleberrying. And I was forgiving it every, every sin. Sheila was not forgiving it every sin. When she listens to this, I'm going to be in trouble. Uh, and then, um, uh, at the end of it, it's like, you're just cathartically happy that, you know, you've, you've gotten through all this with Wyatt Earp, but then you watch it again from a perspective that say maybe wants to look at structure and there isn't any. And it's, uh, it's a little disappointing. I mean, again, I, I don't think that it cripples it as cinema, but I, I think that it sort of takes it out of the running in great westerns. Uh, if you're sort of trying to build them up as a as a as a pinnacle of the genre, they are. Also, with older films, you can uh, if you see something roughly at the time of its release or at the time of its release, and then see it again later. If changes in film style or even in uh, public mores have uh, altered since then, uh, you can uh, look at things and, and be distanced from them. Or technology. Yeah. I mean, how, how many movies have we seen where there's terrific CGI and then you watch it even five years later and you're like, oh, that was not terrific CGI. That was just me wanting to see that balloon. Right. Or pacing. So a yeah. lot of uh, 70s more on the sort of entertainment side of uh, 70s film rather than sort of the uh, art side of 70s film, which are also slow, but meant to be slow. Also stuff like the the 70s Bond movies, even the ones that you think of as the kind of good ones, uh, when you go back to them, uh, not only is, oh, wow, there's even more racism in this than I remembered, but <laughs> uh, which was not something that went uncommented upon at the time, of course, uh, but also that, wow, this is just very slow uh you know it's like oh they're 
there's there's a scene in this movie where Roger Moore just looks around his hotel room to see if there's booby traps, and it it seems to clock in at three minutes and thirty seconds. It's like, <laughs> and the sort of eighties MTV cinema, the influence of the Ridley Scotts and the Adrian Lines, uh, speeded up film quite a lot, especially uh, a pop culture film, and so uh, films from certain periods seem very slow. Thirties films. They still rattle along in a way yeah, they, seem, they seem more contemporary than, say, uh, films from the 50s or 60s, or uh, uh, particularly when uh, everything sort of became stage-bound again to accommodate uh, Cinemascope. But particularly, that they are built to be bigger and longer, and, uh, and then other films, or uh, also acting styles can change. Uh, the uh, things that you think of as being... Uh, as having sort of a gritty, realistic acting style. If you look at some of the 70s uh, Eastwood flicks, for example, it's like, wow, he's, especially once he directed, he's directed everybody else to act in a very cartoony, presentational style, I guess, to contrast with his own downplayed style. And, and sometimes there's some uh, quite surprising mugging in uh, some of those films when you go back to them. There's also uh, the memory hole where, of course, having an experience in real life, uh, memory is tricky. And it's uh, even trickier when you're just passively consuming a, a film, which uh, can sometimes seem like a dream that you remember part of it. So when I recently went back and watched The Wicker Man, there are moments from that film that were very much burned into my uh, memory. Scenes involving Edward Woodward and the Brit Eklund dance, of course, and the the townsfolk on the island uh, roaming around and the overall tone and sinister quality of it. But I had forgotten an incredibly major anchoring part of that film, which is uh, not just Christopher Lee's amazing, funny, crazy performance, but the fact that he was in it at all. I'd completely <laughs> forgotten that. How do you forget Christopher Lee, Robin? Because memory is weird, Ken. You may have, you may have been subject to some sort of vampire action. And when but Dracula erased that's, that's in part of the, himself, he also erased Christopher Lee from your brain. But that's just part of the experience of, of watching films. And wow. That. Yeah. I mean, I've had, I've had, I forgot he was in it type moments when I rewatch a film, although I don't think I've ever forgotten <laughs> the second lead in a film necessarily. But, uh, and I've never forgotten Christopher Lee. I've, I may have even put Christopher Lee into movies it turns out he wasn't in. Um, uh, for example, uh, when I was doing, uh, Thrill of Dracula, uh, I thought, that Billy the Kid versus Dracula was one movie, turned out to be a different movie called Curse of the Undead. And neither of them is a good movie, but Curse of the Undead had a sort of a rattling quality to it, and Billy the Kid versus Dracula is terrible. I guess this is the most radical version in which you turn out to have been watching a different movie in the first place. But a lot of it is also, I mean, just, uh, you alluded to it earlier with, uh, oh, Battleship Potemkin, very cool. When I first saw uh, Magnificent Seven, for example, I think I was maybe nine or ten, and to a nine or ten-year-old, this may be the perfect film. And then you watch Seven Samurai, and you, you may still love Magnificent Seven, as I still do, and still think that it is a terrific movie, as I still do, but you are never going to be impressed by its originality or cleverness or structure or acting or anything like that, because it just, all of it pales in comparison to the original. And if you haven't seen Kurosawa, you watch someone who is based on Kurosawa, and then you watch Kurosawa and I don't say you lose respect for the other film, but it, it cannot possibly move you as much uh, seeing it a second time. The other side of the, the memory hole issue is the mistaken rewatch when <laughs> you're like, wait, have I seen this? <laughs> um, and if the film was sort of middlingly memorable, right, you're not going to 
forget that you saw a taxi driver. Right. But, uh, you know, recently I was, uh, looking at a, a particular film noir in the, uh, uh, Columbia film noir series that's on the Criterion channel called Pushover. And, uh, at the beginning, it's like, have I seen, I'm, um, oh, Kim Novak, Fred McNary. I'm not sure. Oh yeah. Yeah. And then further on, oh, they're in the window. Okay. Yes. I've, I have seen this or, uh, it's a particular issue with Shaw Brothers movies, uh, because yeah. they famously, uh, just redress the same sets all the time and had, uh, you know, uh, particular stock situations and stock characters. And it's like, is this the scene with the evil guy with the cigarette holder in the audience at the Peking Opera? Is this reminiscent of other movies I've seen or have I seen this movie? So right. there's that. Uh, uh, level of, of sort of memory trick again, where yeah, gun to my head, I could not tell you which Abbott and Costello movies I've seen. I mean, I've, I know I've seen a bunch of them. I have not seen all of them, but they reuse stock situations and even dialogue in those movies so often that it's like, you tell me an Abbott and Costello movie that does not involve Frankenstein. And I will have very little idea of whether or not I've seen it. Uh, because again, they, you know, they made a ton of them and they made them, Economically, I guess you'd put it. Uh, another thing that movies, I mean, we were sort of dancing around the question of, you know, films that change, but I think even in a very minor way, uh, for example, you know, before and after you get a cat, you can't watch Pet Cemetery the same way because you're like, now I'm rooting for, for the cat and I think it's terrible, uh, that this happened. It's a different, it's a more visceral thrill, uh, of seeing Pet Cemetery post-cat ownership than pre-cat ownership. I imagine that if you have a kid, you can't watch Big Fish or another uh, good movie about fatherhood the same way because you know, you're you're feeling the genuine emotion that the film is attempting to inspire. And whether the film is doing it meretriciously or not, you are deal- you are bringing a, a stronger, realer emotion to it than if you had seen the movie uh, prior to that experience happening. Uh, movies about uh, true love, if you haven't found your true love, will, uh, to some level, uh, seem different before than after, right? I, I just assume that any movie about a, a a major human experience to the humans who have not experienced that yet can at best be aspirational or illustrational, and then only on the other side of that do they speak to you uh, sort of peer-to-peer, right? Right, and uh, there are films in particular that will take you back in time to uh, an earlier time in your life, and the uh, memories of that uh, may overwhelm what's actually on the screen. So I have a very vivid memory of being taken by my dad to a drive-in to see Valley of Guanji, which is a Ray Harryhausen uh, dinosaurs and cowboys movie. Mm-hmm. And my memory of that experience was very uh, vivid. But uh, watching the whole film, it's like the the memory part of that is, is sort of a, a sharp sort of capsule thing. Or he took me to see 2001. So uh, what do I childhood me remembers the the hominids at the beginning and some of the space station stuff. But the uh, rest of that experience of watching it is not then overlaid with the experiences of being a kid. And of course there's the experience of watching things that you saw as a kid that bring up a deep well of emotion in you that you didn't have at the time. So, uh, you know, if you get sort of reclamped when R2D2 shows up again, or uh, you see, uh, a clip from uh, Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs in a, a documentary about animation, that's definitely a case of uh, the imprint that you've made uh, from your own life sort of coming up and uh, superseding uh, the artistry of the film itself because that the, your, uh, the elements of your biography that are being 
suddenly uh, released from memory are uh, not bigger than, but certainly uh, parallel to whatever uh, the filmmaker has intended or, or put and, on And, of course, that's, that's what a lot of, you know, cynical garbage nostalgia films trade on anyway, is that they're trying to do that because they can't earn a response themselves, and they can only earn an, oh, look, it's R2-D2 type response, uh, Ready Player One popping instantly to mind. But we're talking about the opposite of Ready Player One, which is a movie that you could watch again or at all. Uh, I think that there, there's a lot of movies, um, that I saw as, a, as a kid, you know, especially Westerns or, or classic horror that you watch it again. And it's really like two different human beings are watching this movie because, there is a level at which you just appreciate Dracula and whatever Dracula is doing, you're on side because Dracula. And then as an adult, you can't help but watch, uh, Bella, uh, uh, the, the classic, you know, Todd Browning, 1931 Dracula. As a kid, I was just happy Dracula was in a movie. I remember that first act really, really well, um, because everyone does. And then as I'm watching it later, it's not that, Oh, that's the only part that appealed to me like the hominids. It's just, that's the only good part of the movie. And so, you know, you, you're, I'm, I'm two different people when I think about Dracula. I can, I can very strongly remember the sensation of being 10 or 11 or whatever it was when I saw it on Schiller Horror Theater, channel 34 back in Oklahoma City. And I obviously can watch it as a, as a grown human with a film, uh, sense and, and they have a different reaction, but it's not like one overwrites the other. It's like two different human beings saw this movie and I somehow have both of their memories. And, and finally, another category of the rewatch is, the film that is revelatory when you first see it, and then when you see it another time, it's not, it's still good, it's still solid, and you understand why you had that response the first time around, but it doesn't recreate the magic because so much of what was, had an impact on you, uh, was its originality and the new vision that it presented, and it's not a, uh, a trick that repeats. So, uh, for example, uh, Takeshi Kitano's film Hanabi, I still think is a masterpiece, but watching it a second time, I'm much more in analytical mode and uh, being so- somewhat surprised that, oh, this scene happened earlier than I thought it did. And, uh, but it's not necessarily that the same full wash of feelings uh, comes over me again or the very strange, uh, Japanese, uh, satire called R100, uh, depends, uh, greatly on the fact that the things that you're being shown are like, I've, I can't believe that I'm seeing this on a screen, uh, and I'm not even going to explain what that uh, is, yeah. except that it's extreme cinema. So uh, if you're upset by the don't go near it. But the the progression of and now it's going here and now here uh, is so much part of the the experience of of watching it that the element of surprise is gone the second time. And there are uh, things that you can uh, I still enjoyed it, but it's not oh this masterpiece is affecting me or this. Uh, completely out there uh, thing that is sort of based on uh, shock or surprise is is uh, I'm prepared for it now. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of movies that uh, turn on a on a twist ending or a, or have a surprise inherent in watching them, even if it's just the surprise that the filmmaker was this audacious. And I think we probably talked about rewatching uh, The Usual Suspects, which is a infinitely rewatchable movie, even though it has a twist ending. And it's not even one of those where you watch it and sort of because they don't super play fair and leave clues to the twist ending that you can pick up a second time. You sort of can, but not really. And, and so the, the, the rewatch of a movie like that provides, it, it's what we, what we've talked about 
in the first rewatching segment, it's the joy of hanging out with that film, not the original joy that that film brought to you. So in, in some ways, I mean, I've rewatched the usual suspects, God knows how many times, but I, you can only see it first once. And I think that's true in many cases with every great movie, because even if the movie has no surprise element, the, the moment where you saw someone do that specific art is revelatory if you're paying attention to the art and if the art was, was good. I mean, I, I can, I've rewatched Ron, for example, and it's still amazing, but it's not, you know, heart stoppingly amazing the way it was the first time I watched it. I've rewatched, um, uh, I, the only way that I, I got more impressed with Lawrence of Arabia, I, which I'd seen probably four times before the previous restored version came out. And I saw that for the first time on the big screen, and that was a, a, a big change because obviously David Lean meant me to be surrounded on 165 degrees with that stupid desert. And that was a hugely impactful I've, – I've used the word impactful. I can't do that. Yes, that I almost huge, used it earlier and, and altered my syntax mid-sentence right, to avoid having it. But, but this is sort of – this is a discussion of the impact that films uh, have on you uh, over time. So I guess right. it's – it's sadly inevitable. Right. So it, it was, it was very impressive is my point to, yes. to, to see that in that way. But then I've got the DVDs and I've watched them since then and it's still a great movie and I'm still caught up in every moment of it. But at no point am I even back at my first viewing, much less my first movie viewing where I'm just dumbfounded at the artistry. I'm founded at the artistry. I'm, I'm there with the artistry. I'm on David Lean's side a thousand percent for the artistry, but it's not a revelation in the way that you first see, you know, um, uh, Stonehenge is a revelation. The ninth time you see Stonehenge, it's pretty great, but it's not the first time you see Stonehenge. Uh, well, if one of us is saying impactful, I think it's yeah, time for us to... It's a sign that everyone needs to be taken to re-education. It's time to reach out to see if there's a commercial. <laughs> You're a and monster. Then see, and then see what's on the other side. The Best of Askfageln is now available at DriveThruRPG. All issues of Phoenix Magazine since 2013. That's spelled F-E-N-I-X. Can now be grabbed in special English editions. Containing stellar gaming material from our own Ken Height. And such other recurring stalwarts as Graham Davis. And Pete Nash. Also find Dice, the gorgeous photo book celebrating that classic gaming accessory. And Freeway Warrior, the series of post-apocalyptic choose-your-adventures by Joe Dever. And if you speak Swedish, not English... That's Swedish, not English. You can delight in every original issue of Phoenix. And the new Sagebrush and Six Guns role-playing game, Western. How do you say slap leather varmint in Swedish? Uh, oddly, Google Translate refuses to help on that. That's the best of Askfageln on DriveThru. Maintain this podcast's vital bronze reserves by joining such Patreon backers as... Corey Welch. Fred Kish. John Kingdom. Louis R. Evans. And Mark Giles. So we're here for yet another installment of Ken and or Robin talk to somebody else. Uh, and we are at CarcosaCon uh, in a uh, medieval-turned-renaissance-turned-modern-turned-hotel castle. And uh, we are here with uh, Lynn Hardy, 
uh, who uh, I have uh, known, uh, you and I both uh, had the experience of our hobby role-playing turning into a job. I've known you for a long time, long before you had any idea that you would get sucked into this nonsense, (laughs) Uh, but uh, introduce yourself to uh, listeners who have not uh, had the pleasure of having you over to your uh, house uh, many times. (laughs) Well, I squarely do blame Robin for an awful lot of what happened in the uh, 25 years plus since we first started arguing (laughs) with each other. That's fair. That's legitimate. (laughs) It is, isn't it? Yeah, so, I mean, we we used to have arguments about Talislanta rules development when I was supposed to be doing a PhD uh, at Newcastle, and my background was a biomedical research scientist with role-playing on the side. Well, thank God you got into role-playing and out of that go-nowhere field. (laughs) (laughs) Biomedical research, is that even a thing now? No, no. You know, all those attempts to graft extra arms on monkeys, it just never went anywhere. You know, so commercially you decided it would be, you know, far more worth my time and effort to to devote myself to gaming. That's sensible thinking. Yeah, I know. Um, So I have worked for an awful lot of gaming companies now. Palgrain. Medifius, Cubicle 7, Green Ronin, Chaosium is the latest one, and I've just become the permanent full-time associate line editor for Call of Cthulhu. There you go. What is it that uh, you find fascinating about uh, Cthulhu that makes you want to, because uh, you've focused on that uh, a lot with your uh, work on Acton Cthulhu before, why are you uh, a, a, a Cthulhu person? It's, I think it's one of those things I kind of slid into rather than consciously set out to do, I have been subsumed by the mythos and drawn into it. Because I don't particularly like watching horror films, I don't particularly like reading horror novels. Um, But somehow me and the mythos just seem to roll along quite nicely. I suspect it's because I like the history aspect of it. And I like um, puzzle solving. So I like creating puzzles for people to go figure out. And it seems like a nice fit. Uh, so listeners may be wondering, uh, what is a line editor? What do you do? What are your duties? Um, so at the moment, being just sort of like the, the line editor still in training, I I sort of kneel before Mike Mason, obviously, who is the, the full line editor. But my responsibilities are to help develop new works, to edit existing manuscripts that have come in, rewrite bits if required, um, art develop sorry, art direct various books, put in requests for the artwork maps, you know, so basically chief cook, bottle washer and cat herder quite often. So I think you talked to Mike and got clearance on, on what you can talk about. Uh, okay, you're just going to pretend. You're going to get permission afterwards. Uh, so we'll put the permission in the show notes. Yeah. So, so is there a project that you that is in a fairly advanced uh, state of completion that you can, first of all, tell us what it is, and then we can sort of go through the different steps of your involvement in it and what a line editor does and, and from beginning to end. So, so a good one for that would actually be a, a Cold Fire Within, which is Christopher Smith Adair's pulp adventure. Um, and that is, that's in the pipeline. The art is being done. It's being edited. So that will be coming along forthwith. So what's the premise of this adventure? The premise is that all is not well under the Catskill Mountains and that silly people have gone off to perform rituals in Kenyan and have done something very, very silly that is liable to end the world. And the whole point is that you are supposed to then go down and make sure that doesn't happen. 
So as line editor, how do you first, uh, what is your first contact with, with a project like this? That one had already been written when I was hired. So I got the raw manuscript, which had had, Mike had done development work with Christopher on it. And uh, what is development work for people who just play role-playing games and don't publish right. them? So authors will submit pitches. They will submit their ideas to us. This is a book I would like to write. This is a scenario I would like to create for you. So we would work with them to make sure that it fits with other things that we're doing, that it's not clashing with other stuff that we're doing. And also we help them to make sure that it fits in with the world that we have already. Um, so it's not going off down some weird trouser leg of the mythos that doesn't fit with Chaosium's ethos. And we'll point them in the right direction. We'll help them sometimes, depending on who the author is, with the rules element and just sort of give them help and advice so that they can complete the first draft of the manuscript. Then we'll look over that manuscript to see whether it's got everything that keepers would need to help support them run the game. Depending on who the author is, you might then send it back for revisions. If there's not too much needs doing, as an editor, you would just tweak it up yourself. Then you work to create that manuscript that is then ready by editing it, sorting out all the stats, making sure they're all okay, all the handouts are there. Then you get the artwork commissioned, you get the maps and things commissioned, and then we hand it over to Nick Nicario in Layout, who makes it look beautiful. And then we have somebody check it to make sure we haven't done anything stupid while we're making it look beautiful. And then it's ready to go. So when you talk about commissioning art, are at Chaosium, as a line editor, are you also... Uh, the art director or do you coordinate with an art director we are the art directors at the moment yes so uh you're saying uh that that's basically the stage that uh chris's adventure is is in now yes the art's been commissioned is, we're waiting on the art coming in right and and you when you are doing something like this that's got a specific location it's not just generic haunted house b that you are, you want to get you know period references. You want to look what the Catskills look like. You don't want them to look like the Adirondacks, much less the Rockies. Is there is that your responsibility to send visual reference to the artist? Is it your responsibility to say I'm picking an artist from Albany so they'll know what the Catskills look like? Where does where do you hand off to the artist? Or you just write in and say give us some Catskills and make them look creepy. <laughs> Um, I tend to try and like to provide as much reference material for the artists as possible. I'm still learning who the artists are and what their strengths are because I'm relatively new to the art direction side of things. I did a lot of art direction on Acton Cthulhu, but we had one artist and that was Dim Martin. And Dim was psychic and he could read your mind, he knew what you wanted. So... Isn't it really annoying to work with someone really great early on and get spoiled? Yeah, totally. It ruins you forever after. I mean, we do have wonderful, wonderful artists for Chaosium, but I'm just learning who they are. Um, so I like to over-prepare just so that I'm not leaving anything to chance because I don't yet know what their strengths are, how good they are at finding their own reference material. And it's one of those interesting things as well, obviously, because it being a period book, we like to try and use public domain images if we can find them. And it's weird how there are some areas of the world, there are a ton. And then in other areas of the world, there are nothing particularly useful. Uh, but I do like to try and make sure that 
anything weird and wonderful or a little bit offbeat or a little bit harder to find, I've provided as much as I can for the artist so that they can just concentrate on getting that piece of artwork done. They don't have to spend a whole load of extra time hunting for it for themselves. And then, uh, obviously, the rules are going to be the rules. Uh, making sure the rules say what the rules say is fairly straightforward. I think even if you're playing the game, you can figure out what that is. Is there a degree to which, and you weren't part of this process very early on, uh, but there, is there a degree to which someone pitches an adventure and you say, this will be great for our upcoming series of Haster adventures, make the bad guy Haster. Is that a, a thing that uh, you'll go back and forth with the author on, or is it a thing where the author pitches this great Kenyan adventure and it's like, all right, we have to put it in our pile until we have four other underground adventures and can do mysteries underground. Is it To what degree is it driven by the author and to what degree is it driven by Chaosium's needs? It very much depends on how big a thing the author wants to do. Um, with Christopher, as far as I'm aware, he had a campaign. Right. So that was always going to be its own thing. Sometimes, yes, you do get individual scenario pitches that you do have to sort of like, yes, we want that, we want to work with you on that, but it's not going to be an immediate thing that comes out because, as you say, we need another couple of thematically similar things that will go together with that to make it worth putting it out as one book. So we're we're currently in the process of developing um, a couple of books that have individual scenarios in them that follow a, a sort of theme so that, you know, keepers who don't have the time and players who don't have the time commitment to go into a full campaign will have individual scenarios they can pick up and run with. Now, obviously you and I both wish nothing but long life and prosperity to Mike. <laughs> but do you have dreams for what you want to do with Call of Cthulhu? There are a Should couple of things, you yes. be given your head? Is there, what's the, what's the thing that when we see it in the, in the announcement we'll go, oh yeah, that was Lynn. She just elbowed Mike aside. Oh, it's, it's, it's terrible what happened to Mike in that Yeah, accident. it was awful. I mean, thank God he's going to recover with therapy and, and care. Yeah. And the scary thing is I do actually know where Mike lives. Yeah. I, not scary to me. I mean, obviously, it's sad to me because I love Mike. But less scary to you than it would be to Mike. Oh, yeah. Not once he hears it. And believe me, murderous women, that's kind of my... <laughs> kind of my, my wheelhouse at this point. But, um, we, but we digress. We do digress. <laughs> tell us tell us the Lynn Hardy Call of Cthulhu thing that is living in your heart that you wish to uh, tear out and show to a, a grieved world. Well, it was something that came up on the um, Call of Cthulhu panel a couple of years ago at Gen Con, at the last Gen Con I was at. Somebody asked the question of what time period do you think has not been exploited sufficiently in Call of Cthulhu? Um, and I said, well, the Elizabethan era. Right. Uh, so at some point, I would dearly love to develop that as a standalone line with supporting material, source books, not just looking at the, the European side of it, but looking at all over the place, because mm-hmm. it's such a rich period of history, not just in Europe, but beyond Europe, that I think we could do something really quite entertaining with that in different areas of the world that haven't really been looked at a great deal. And a little bit of hashtag Solomon King hashtag. Oh, you, you never know. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, you're presumably, you have been doing this long enough that you've been looking at pitches. You've looked at pitches, presumably, in the previous... Uh, I've had to submit quite a few as well over the years. Uh, but for people who have been in the position of submitting them, uh, what are you uh, looking for in a pitch? What uh, uh, is the thing that makes you go, that one, not this one? Someone who really has a handle on what it is they're trying to do. 
something concise and clear that that you can immediately grab onto and you can start to visualize. So uh, we teased the idea that you'd be talking about more future projects. So uh, since uh, Mike is clearly giving you carte blanche to talk about things, <laughs> uh, what should people be looking for? If he, if he knows what's good for me. <laughs> The thing with Call of Cthulhu, obviously, is it's a it's an old game. It's had its revamp uh, for seventh edition, but it has a huge back catalogue of of material that old fans know and love and want to see again. Um, but is also really good that we want to bring it to a new audience who haven't had a chance to experience it. But also, what you don't want to become is just a greatest hits factory, just putting out the same right, greatest hits the Beach album Boys. all the time. You don't want right. to be the Beach Boys. Um, so what we're doing is we're trying to pace the releases so that there will be new material for Pulp, for Down Darker Trails, for Classic, you name it. But there will also be the old favourites. We'll be getting an update and a revamp. They may be appearing in uh, collections with new scenarios that are thematically similar. So it's not just all old stuff. There will be the, look, here's this lovely classic campaign. It's a cl- classic scenario that you old fogies like. Um, but here's some new stuff to, to get you, you know, sort of get your juices flowing again. And to somebody who's not played the game before, who is new to it, well, it'll all be new. Mm-hmm. Um, there used to be an advertising campaign, actually, when I lived in Toronto many, many moons ago. That was it. It's not a repeat if you haven't seen it yet. Yes, and then... Uh... America, it was uh, ABC used to do a, a series of promos. Uh, it's new to you. <laughs> yeah, same thing. So are there specific products you want to uh, uh, plug as uh, out now or soon to be out? Well, yes. One of the ones that has just come out, we released it on Tuesday because we were having the company summit in Berlin, is, of course, Berlin, the Wicked City, uh, which was a joyous thing to work on. When they first took me on, sort of like on the, the freelance associate line editor thing um, 18 months ago, uh, Mike very, very kindly said, so here's this list of books. Which ones would you like to work on in the next 12 months, whatever? So um, Secrets of Berlin, as it was called then, was there. And it's like that one, Christopher's Campaign, um, a couple of other things that aren't really far enough along for me to mention yet. So Berlin Wicked City was a wonderful one to work on because I'd spent some time in Berlin by that point. I'd wandered around a lot of these locations it's a fascinating period of history because it's the the Weimar period before everything goes horribly wrong, or as things are starting to go horribly <laughs> things wrong. Things go differently <laughs> and horribly wrong. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, that that was a really lovely book to work on. So it's obviously it's about Berlin, and there are three scenarios in there that look at dis- different aspects of that decadent decline. Um, and so that was great. I had a lot of fun with that one. I got to do some bits and bobs on Terror Australis as well. I mean, I'm a huge murder mystery fan, particularly cosy murder mystery. Mm-hmm. So I got to write the Miss Fisher private detective section for Terror Australis. <laughs> I also got to proofread it and laugh myself stupid at the section on American vocab, uh, sorry, Australian um, vocabulary and swearing, which is a thing of great delight to anyone who knows Australians. And, you know, it's Australia. There's plenty of things trying to kill you that have nothing to do with the mythos. Right, yeah, it's just standard old gonorrhea-infected koala bears. Yeah, precisely. (laughs) You know, and trees with needle-like things that sort of, like, pierce your skin and inject venom straight into your nerve endings. And all completely indifferent to your existence. Exactly. Yeah, precisely. Uh, Well, thank you so much for uh, talking to us, Liam. Thank you very much for having me on.
Have you found the yellow sign? The King in Yellow, Robert W. Chambers' unearthly book, has inspired millions of readers since the death of the Gilded Age. A beautiful new edition from Arc Dream Publishing brings fresh potency to its stories of poisonous romance. This deluxe hardback features gold foil embossing and a leather cover in the black snakeskin pattern that Chambers described. A foreword by John Scott Tyne sets the stage. Annotations by Kenneth Height elucidate the secrets and histories of every tale. Samuel Araya's full-color plates and charcoal illustrations evoke the otherworldly weirdness of Carcosa. Every print order comes with the PDF digital edition. The annotated King in Yellow insinuates itself into our reality in July 2019. The ball begins. It is time to don your mask. Join the masquerade at shop.arcdream.com. It's time once more to wend our way up the creakety cobweb stairs. We're going to uh, wave at the glowering portrait of Madame Blavatsky, but uh, she's just going to keep glowering at us. That's her way. We're going to head on into an Edwardian parlor where waits the consulting occultist. And this time, the consulting occultist uh, gets a preamble and then an amble. Uh, so the preamble, uh, and both of these, of course, are from Patreon backer Andrea Coletta, is... I think I understand the meaning of elliptony and elliptonic, even though I've never heard an Oxford Dictionary definition of it. Anyway, I'm even more curious to know something about its etymology. And, uh, Ken, you're about to reveal that it is a Kenism. It is a Kenism, although it has an etymology. I made up the word elliptony because there was no word that referred to every aspect of uh, crank belief uh, equally. Um, if you called something uh, woo-woo, you were sort of leaving out uh, polywater. If you called something crank science, you're leaving out the uh, 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 magic of Stonehenge. If you call something magic, you're leaving out all the Fortean goodness with uh, reins of fish. So uh, Fortiana is as close as you got, and even Charles Fort, uh, God bless, did not uh, cover the whole ambit of wrong thought the way that my bookshelves do. So I coined the term elliptony based on a uh, crazy rant by beloved Russian politician Vladimir Zhirinovsky, who began as an ultra-communist and became an ultra-rightist, and God knows what he is now, uh, probably still out there getting it done. But in the 90s, he was very angry at the Soviet Union falling apart and uh, had to take his, um, uh, his, his issues out. And so he would go around and he would brag that Russia had developed the Elipton weapon. And they had an elliptic gun or an elliptic bomb. It was not sure which it was, but it was definitely the elliptic, and it would end you. And they uh, used it in Serbia and killed a ton of Muslims. And just you watch if uh, if you come at the Russia, will elliptic you so hard? And I loved it because it was just self-dealing nonsense. It was just bibble babble of the purest quality, and it was just right there. It had just brand new. So I thought. Why not the whole field? And I considered elliptonics, but then I thought, now that sounds a little too sciencey. You're not going to refer to magic as elliptonics, but elliptony, that's a big, beautiful, broad term, and it can uh, refer to everything. And since nothing did refer to everything, I began referring to everything as elliptony. And sure enough, uh, I have gone from strength to strength to strength, etymologically speaking. Right. Now, this show makes a distinction that you do not uh, within this umbrella term in that it hives the occult off into one segment, and elliptony is sort of the catch-all for weirdness that doesn't right. uh, 
quite uh, fit in the other. And it also uh, pre- presents conspiracy theory as its own hut. But um, I like to think that the um, uh, that the Elliptony hut is a broad hut that contains many huts within it. Right. Um, and this gets even more recursive because we're discussing uh, the uh, Elliptony in the Consulting Occultist segment. Why are we yes. doing that? Well, let's get to the main part of Andrea's question. I was wondering if you think there may be an occult or magical version of the etymology discipline. Etomancy? How could it be used in a game? Uh, so, Ken, uh, first, before we make one up, uh, does one exist? Um, I mean, to some extent, and, and by the way, kudos to Patreon backer Andrea Coletta for saying etymomancy, not etomancy. Etomancy is what my first lazy thought was, but I checked the etymology of etymology while we're being recursive, and it comes from the Greek etymos, meaning true. So etymancy would be wrong, but etymomancy would be the correct, which does not mean it would not be referred to as etymancy about 40 seconds after someone came up with it. Because too many syllables. To some extent, etymomancy is just the good old Kabbalah, right? I mean, the Kabbalah is about finding the true meaning of words. Uh, You break them down into their numeric uh, nature, that numeric nature is in common with other numeric natures. Um, uh, I guess technically this is Gematria Kabbalah is a bigger discipline, but this is the Kabbalah aspect that I'm talking about. Um, and so the, the, the sense that every word has a secret and powerful meaning is at the core of Kabbalah, uh, because God uttered those words to create things. So that is, you know, that's good old standard stuff. And you can use, uh, Kabbalah in a game in any number of ways, such as the ways that I personally used it in GURPS Cabal, for example. Uh, but a straight up, um, dig into the etymology of something uh, to know its magical core is, I think, I'm not going to say it's never been done, but I don't recall seeing it. I will say that. So we can imagine this as a uh, magical tradition of the book. Uh, right. Because, uh, of course, it is based on literacy and where words come from. You would need to have a culture that has a language uh, like English uh, that has... Um, all sorts of different language families coming together, fighting it out, providing synonyms, uh, uh, providing mysterious uh, possibilities for roots. Because if you have just a very clear, uh, you know, this language went from high zonotic to um, middle zonotic and now to uh, low zonotic and also uh, the uh, the northern dialect. Well, that's there's not a big lot of mystery to go back into and decide uh, what. Uh, the s- root sources of different words are, and we want something that has an esoteric uh, element to it. Because if just anyone knows what word this word came from, that's not magical. Anybody can do that. You need uh, something that uh, requires uh, skill and knowledge and discernment and even the ability to tell the difference between uh, whether your entry and your great uh, concordance of, of sacred etymologies is uh, is real and which one is nonsense. Um, and so we assume this is one in which uh, sorcerers are wandering around with a big tome and they decide that there's something they want to uh, gain power over. For example, let's say you want to gain power over hunger, either to quench the hunger of your army or to... Uh, instill it in a foe. Instill it in a foe. Uh, and so then you would go and you'd look up your language's word for hunger and then you would determine uh, what... Uh, other language it originally came from, and you would meditate upon that, and knowing the true uh, root of hunger, where it came from, I guess sort of implies that there's a an original magical civilization 
uh, it, it, I guess we've got one of those sort of, uh, you know, we've fallen from the great heights of a previous uh, magical uh, knowledge, and so we're trying to find that the magic language inside our everyday language in order to either uh, uh, bring hunger or to banish it. Right. Um, I think that it's more fun, and I would say this, if you're using a real language. If you're just using a pretend language, then what this really boils down to in play is make a research role. It, depending on how good your research role is, how uh, much, how many levels of the hunger spell you can cast or how powerful your hunger enchantment is or whatever. And that, uh, to me, seems a little beside the point. If you're going to put flavor in a game, put flavor in a game. I will say that the Sanskrit language, in addition to being the basis of all Western philology, is also uh, was the subject of its own study by Sanskrit philologists who looked into the etymology of Sanskrit because they believed there was magic to uh, the sounds and speech. And we, we remember our buddies, uh, the, the Armanen, the crazy proto-Aryan nutbags in uh, turn-of-the-century Germany. Uh, they believed the same thing, and they were basically believing it because someone had written down that the Sanskrit philologists believed this, and because the Sanskrit's, uh, Sanskrit is the earliest Indo-European language known at the time, everything they wrote must have been true Aryan truth. So the Armanen are borrowing, at a great remove, the Sanskrit belief that the Nirukta is apparently the magical core of a word, the power core of a word. And so uh, you can simply just use Sanskrit, which seems like a, a great job of work, or you can use the uh, power core of Indo-European languages, which is the uh, proto-Indo-European root words that there are lists of. You can find it anywhere. And those can be your individual words of power, like in uh, like in Ars Magica, you've got your 15 or 20 words of power. If you've got your PIE dictionary, that's your list of words of power. And then mastering one word gives you the power over all the words descended from it. And that is uh, sort of like rune lore, where you have to sort of inscribe that rune, that, that word into you. And then you're walking around with the proto-Indo-European kank in you, which means to burn, to smart, uh, to desire, hunger, to thirst. And so you have power over all of the words that descend from Proto-Indo-European crank. Uh, and figuring out which words those are is an exercise for you and your smartphone or tablet. And that gives you an in incentive in-game to do the research and the homework, because the more things you can show to the GM, look right there in Wiktionary, it says this word comes from crank. Uh, that means I have power over it. And the GM would say, yes, you are right, uh, Laura. You do have that power. Go to and hungerify those bad guys. And presumably there is some sort of uh, mechanical limitation that you would then uh, place on this. Yeah, it would be the number of how many words can you know and how – and it's sort of a choice between broad, breadth or depth, I think. You know, if you have ten magic points to – Penalize it uh, ridiculously. Um, you can put one into each of ten Proto-Indo-European words, or you can put all ten of them into Kank and be just really awesome at hungerifying people. Right. So, uh, what is the uh, the sort of I, I guess uh, emotional hook of wanting to do this of, of to play an, an Edomancer? Uh, it is. Uh, I guess you have your book of concordances in front of you, or your book of uh, root words, or you have a big chart on the wall that you follow. Uh, so you're the sort of uh, bookish uh, trope of, of the sorcerer. And uh, uh, presumably you would then have uh, uh, amusingly hostile relationships uh, with perhaps the other magic user in your party who 
is more of a, uh, you know, feel it naturally or have visions or, uh, something that is, that is not uh, of the book or of the word. And, uh, you may have, uh, they may have the belief that everything went wrong, uh, when people started writing stuff down, that, uh, the true magic in the world can never really be captured in script and instead, uh, that you're imprisoning magic. And so you could have, uh, all sorts of exciting, uh, badinage and byplay with the, you know, the magical, or sort of the, the natural magician in your group, whether that's someone who, uh, you know, frolics around trees or is connected to primal forces or, or what have you. Or it's just a, a, a vent for demons to come out of. Yes. If, uh, because of course, demonologists most famously are always looking for a way to look down on everybody else because they are, they're, yeah. they're just snotty. The, yeah. uh, other things that, that, that might be true is that it is, it, it gives you other bonuses. And for example, in an investigative, uh, fantasy game or an investigative, real world magic y sort of game. It it might be helpful to be able to say, oh, his name is uh Bruce Wayne. Uh his name comes from the driver of a wagon or Wayne. So what that means is that he's going to have a magical car that's going to be super important and we can if we can seize that, we'll we'll have uh control of his power. So we'll just figure out what car Bruce Wayne drives and that will give us power over him because his name is Wayne. And so that sort of you know, investigating the universe. And then when you discover, Oh no, that is a very powerful car. Indeed. I feel terrible. I feel very bad about myself. Um, that gives you that moment of you're using the etymology to sort of get at a hidden deeper truth. And you, the GM of course will have salted it just like you salt any clues into a in, investigative adventure and having that available to you then means maybe because you know, um, uh, whatever proto indopuran word comes from, uh, Wayne, you can control his car, but you can't fight Batman with it because uh, he's he's too powerful. Um, also, if you are aligning yourself with certain word families and gaining magical power of them, that implies that there are other word families that uh, you uh, have to alienate yourself from. Uh, so it might be that there are, uh, you know, there's a list of 12 words that are uh, antithetical or are literally the antonyms of your main uh, defining words that uh, you can't say. And that if you do say them, uh, even out of character as the player in the course of the session, that right. you either cancel all of your existing magics or you uh, face a big penalty up ahead. And so if you that use can... any word that's not from an Indo-European language. So good luck ordering Chinese food. Well, that, that's pretty all, all encompassing. So yeah. it, it might be more interesting to just, you know, say, well, you can't, uh, you know, use anything with the word wood in it or so. Right. And the trick there is to pick something that you are tempted to say, but not that you can't speak without using so that you don't right. want to, you know, a definite article that would be annoying or, you know, you have to speak without using gerunds. That would be uh, too frustrating to uh, pay attention to. But it's like, uh, uh, yeah, you're just never allowed to describe uh, a any of the hot colors. You're not allowed to mention orange or red or yellow. So it has to be rare enough that it's not constantly coming up, but frequent enough that it will happen enough to be fun. Like a superhero weakness. Yes, exactly. Another possibility that you can use with this is that it can, be, of course, be uh, if you're worried that players will not do the homework, it can be the thing that the bad guy does or that the their weird NPC mentor does. So you're not the Edomancers, but you know an Edomancer, and maybe the Edomancer is your buddy, and he says, 
I feel that if you investigate Bruce Wayne's car, it will give you truth. That's my vision from Edomancy. And he sends you off on your mission. Or it can be a bad guy who somehow has stopped Batman, and you don't know how. And so you have to sort of figure it out and, and beat him up. Uh, and he uses Edomancy. Meanwhile, he's looking into your true name. He's looking, you know, you pull a gun on him, and he can stop that because he looked up gun long ago. So you have to sort of figure out some crazy thing that he doesn't know the word for. Uh, that you can get him with, or maybe get him, as I say, with something that comes from a linguistic tradition that he doesn't have knowledge of. So maybe Chinese is even still too common. Sanskrit, obviously, is is a non-starter. But maybe you can go to the Josa, or you can go to the ambassador from Papua New Guinea and say, hey, man, can you loan me a couple of embassy workers? I need them to clout this Edomancer on the head. Uh, it may also be that, that only X number of people can attune themselves to certain powerful words. So, of course, everybody out of Edomancy Academy wants to uh, gain power over the gun. Right. But uh, there's only 12 people in the world at any given time, or six, or, or whatever it is, who can uh, actually exercise that power. So that in order to gain, uh, it's not the knowledge of where the, the root comes from. That's, again, that's something you can look up on the Internet. But rather, the uh, license, the permission to use that term is something that you have to uh, has to be relinquished to you by someone who's willing to give it up. So you want the uh, magical power over guns? Well, you have to identify uh, one of the people who has it and uh, get them to uh, give it to you. And and guess what? If you kill them or hurt them or coerce them, you can never get that power. Right. It just goes to their legally designated heir. And so you can just, uh, you know, convince someone to deed you the right to the word gun when they pass. But, you know, you can't just sit around waiting for that to happen. And you have to actively go and convince uh, the other person to uh, to give you that power. So it may be a, a complex, magical, intellectual property arrangement right. is really at, at the the root of uh, who has power over words and who doesn't. Yeah, you have to track down uh, one of the holders of, of a gun, which is the proto-Indo-European strike or kill. And, uh, and by the way, tracking that guy down is going to be both easy and hard. <laughs> yes. Because guess what he has power over? Right. And then you have to figure out what he wants more than that and get him to trade you his, his knowledge of Gahan versus your hold over the fair Marguerite or your, or any, any other kind of thing that you might have that he can't get by Gahanning you. Uh, well, on that note, I think it's, uh, it's time for us to go and, uh, explore the uh, magical power behind the word stuff, uh, and we'll be back with more stuff a mere seven days from now. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrane Press. Ask the Gown. Arc Dream. Dork Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Get your priority question asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Ken and Robin. Make your name a new synonym for enlightened patronage by throwing in with such Patreon backers as... Pedro Garcia. Stephen Hammond. Will Ferguson and Fifi Pyatt. Thomas Vallejo and Ariel Celeste. Festoon yourself with Ken and Robin merch at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. Wear such shirts as Walrus Revenge. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when once again we will talk about stuff. <laughs>